Welcome, welcome. Glad to have everybody here. And uh, we are going to kind of get into some more meat here of what, what the gospel is not and uh, what the gospel is. And boy, I got some great feedback from people that watched the uh, videos last week from our discussion. It was very encouraging, very uplifting, um, great questions, great discussion. So hopefully we can keep that going this week and continue to, uh, you know, to feel free to ask questions. Um, before we get back to our outline of some of the, the 10 things the gospel is not, just want to make a couple of quick announcements about some videos that I posted this week. The next Culture Shock went up yesterday. This is our 11th episode in that series. These are little 10, 11 minute, 9, 10, 11 minute videos that I do every week or two. Um, and they always take a cultural headline. It's the reason we call it Culture Shock. Kind of a snatched from the headlines issue. And then I kind of elaborate on that, share some thoughts, and then close out with uh, what should Christians do about this. And so that's available. And again, just go to the Not By Works website. Everything is accessible from the website. You don't have to go to YouTube or any other external site. And if you go to the Not By Works site, just click on videos or hover on the videos and you'll see some subcategories come up. Just click on Culture Shock and all 11 of them will be there to watch right on our website. And then another video that just posted, which I thought would be particularly relevant for our study on Wednesday nights, is one that I did called, What is Free Grace? And you'll hear me use that phrase from time to time. Uh, it is a, a thoroughly biblical phrase, and I make that point in this video. This one's a one-hour video, and I go through the biblical meaning of free grace. Where does that term come from? And then I talk about the broader theological implications of this viewpoint. And then I get into some of the modern-day theological movements that are connected to the free grace uh, theology and all of that. So it's just really a, a good, and I've been meaning to do this for a long, long time. And, um, and so I'm really pleased with how it came out, and it'll be a very useful video because often people will ask me, well, what do you mean by free grace? Well, now I can point them to this video. So that one, um, it's kind of a standalone video. So to get to it, you just go to the video page on our website, just click on videos. There's no, it's not a Sunday morning sermon. It's not a Wednesday night Bible study. It's not a Sunday morning, you know, what lies ahead series. It's not culture shock. So it's just kind of hanging out there in our main video page uh, at notbyworks.org. So I wanted to mention that if you're interested. And of course, all of these videos have the corresponding audio. Sometimes people prefer to just watch, I mean, just listen to the audio. Maybe you're driving or working or something and you just want to listen to it. So if you go to our website again and click on podcasts, all of them, you can just listen to the audio version only uh, instead of, or any podcast provider. I know we got a lot of people. We're approaching 20,000 downloads. We should cross 20,000 later this week on our podcasts uh, at Not By Works. So uh, lots of ministry takes place in the podcast arena. A lot of people have signed up to get our podcast, and it's available on any podcast provider. So Apple, Google, um, you know, Spreaker, Podbean, um, Amazon, uh, all of them. Any, there's 20 of them, and it's available on all of them. So, uh, so keep that in mind and pray that the Lord will use that. Um, and we're looking forward to crossing that milestone. So those are the two videos, the culture shock and uh, what is free grace. Uh, but I want us to return tonight to our kind of discussion of what the gospel is not. And this is our seventh, or eighth rather, eighth installment in this 
series, and we're just kind of chasing rabbits and going where the discussion leads us. But way back at the beginning, so I guess eight weeks ago, I introduced it by reminding you that uh, it's pretty easy to get agreement when I talk about what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. He's the Savior, the substitutionary atonement, all of those things. Where you begin to step on toes is when you talk about what the gospel is not. And we've already seen some of that as we've talked about common terminology and nomenclature that people have come to use in the Western Christian world and how really confusing that can be and how in some cases it can be dead wrong. And so we want to continue to refine our understanding of what the gospel is by ruling out what the gospel is not. Okay, so that's the kind of the goal. So some of the foundational verses that I like to bring up each week as we start. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In a similar vein, Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works, could just as easily say not of works, of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Um, the Bible ends with this great uh, open-ended call, whosoever will, come and drink, come let him drink of the water of life freely, freely. So when we talk about the gospel, we have to Remember that grace by definition is free. If it's not free, it's not grace. If it's not grace, it's not free. Um, grace means gift. I talk about this in that, ser that video I just did on what is free grace uh, quite a bit. I look at several passages exegetically and make that case. Um, but really, free grace is kind of redundant, you know, and, and sometimes the Bible uses redundancy to make a point. Uh, I get that a lot uh, that people say, well, aren't you being redundant when you say free grace? Well, the Bible says it, so it's got to be in there for a reason. Uh, Howard Hendricks, uh, who's with the Lord now, but he uh, was famous for his uh, teaching on how to study the Bible. And I had him as a professor 30 years ago now, 32 years ago now. And um, he, uh, he always uh, talked about the importance of observation. And he said, you should look for things that are repeated. Because if God repeats them in his word, it's for emphasis. And so even though grace, by its very definition, means free gift, sometimes the Bible puts the adverb or the, ver or the adjective, either one, before it free to just remind us just how free God's salvation is. So we left off last time by talking about how the gospel is not repenting of your sin. We have several resources that go into much greater detail about that. Uh, videos uh, out there uh, floating around on the web, as well as DVDs. Um, but we've addressed it now twice in this Wednesday night series. We addressed it several weeks ago before we got into what the gospel is not in back-to-back -back weeks on, on repentance. What does that mean? And then we, of course, addressed it last uh, two weeks ago here when we talked about what it means. So let's move forward um, with this next uh, item, and then uh, again, feel free to throw up your hand with questions and chime in at any point. But we need to remember the gospel is not surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Master. And so once again, here we have an example of confusing discipleship with salvation. Uh, eternal salvation is a free gift, as I've just been saying, paid for by the blood of Christ. 
Uh, and it, it, it's not something that we have to earn. So remember this distinction that we've brought up several times between you know, salvation and discipleship or what's called justification and sanctification. So justification is the one-time moment in time when you trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation and you are permanently declared righteous. Nothing can change that. It's permanent. It happens when faith meets the gospel. And that's what rescues us from the penalty of sin, namely eternity in hell. But then uh, sanctification is what is often called discipleship, which is the spiritual growth process of following Christ, being conformed to the image of Christ, being set apart, that's what sanctified means, in Christ's likeness. And uh, that's something that happens progressively over time as we grow and as we walk by faith. And that sanctification process rescues us not from sin's penalty, because that issue has already been resolved. It's, it rescues us from sin's power. And so we've talked a lot about this, and I've thrown this up on the screen a lot in the context of positional righteousness, which is what justification is, and practical righteousness, speaking of our behavior, which is, deals with sanctification. And remember, we've said you know, your practice in life should reflect your position in Christ. That's the goal. But what happens sometimes is... A lot of Bible teachers, theologians, authors will blur the line of distinction between these two categories. And passages that relate in the Bible to sanctification and discipleship, to the living the Christian life, are mistakenly taken to be passages that tell us how to get saved in the first place, how to be justified, how to go to heaven. And so this issue that we're dealing with uh, right now on surrendering your life to Christ is one of those issues where a lot of the passages that you'll see people bring up about it are passages, when you look at them in their context, where typically it's Jesus from the Gospels talking to the disciples who were already believers and saying things like, take up your cross and follow me. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Count the cost before you build a tower. And those are all important aspects of discipleship and sanctification for believers. But nobody gets to heaven by, you know, counting the cost. Because how much cost is there for us to get eternal life? None. That's what free means, right? If there's a cost to it, it's not free. So it's not cheap and it's not expensive. It's free. Now, it cost God his own son, and it cost God's son his own blood. So like all gifts, there is a price to be paid. Somebody has to purchase the gift, but that's not us. That's why it's a gift. If we had to pay something, it wouldn't be a gift. So there's no counting the cost. That's a part of discipleship. Every day as a believer, as a child of God, Christians ought to wake up and, and count the cost. They ought to say, how can I serve him? How can I follow him better? How can I live my life for him? And so this notion of surrendering your life to Jesus as Lord and Master is a part of the sanctification process, not the justification process. Uh, it's not that it's not important. You know, um, for years, the, the opposing viewpoint theologically, to those who teach and believe in grace, and they believe it's free, like me and like the Bible, uh, was called Lordship Salvation. And they taught that in order to get to heaven, you've got to surrender to Jesus as Lord, or you've got to make Him Lord, right? 
And it was an unfortunate argument because sometimes people misunderstood the grace perspective as if, it, as if we were saying the lordship of Christ is not important. I mean, the lordship of Christ is extremely important. And we believe that Christ is Lord. We believe that he's on the throne. We believe that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords because the Bible teaches that. But he's the Lord whether I make him Lord or not. And that's the reason he can purchase our redemption and, and, and purchase eternal life and then turn around and give it to us as a free gift if we trust him for it. Uh, so, uh, you know, when we were debating those who teach lordship salvation, we're just saying as it relates to eternal salvation and how you, how you get saved, that moment of, of conversion, as it relates to that, there's no sense in which you've got to surrender something to the Lordship of Christ. That's something that all believers uh, should do. So this viewpoint is really problematic. Today, the opposing view is basically caught up in the whole Calvinism discussion. Calvinists are Lordship Salvationists, um, and Lordship Salvationists are Calvinists. So Calvinism, of course, teaches that part of believing the gospel means bringing something to the table. And I've talked about that extensively in my series on what is Calvinism, and that's available on our website as well. Um, so, you know, they, because they believe that, that faith in Christ means promising, pledging, forsaking, changing, turning, giving, all of those terms that we've been talking about, then this, this is just one more to add to the bunch, one more to put on our side of the ledger. You've got to surrender to Jesus of Lord. Now, think about the implications of that. First of all, like all of these others, commitment and giving something to the Lord and repenting of your sin, it is inherently subjective. You cannot quantify surrender. Like, if I were to say... You know, how much has Steve surrendered to the Lord today? And how much has Jeff surrendered to the Lord today? It's not like you can pull out a, you know, ledger and say, 72%. And Steve goes, ah, 74%. See, I'm a better Christian than you, you know. There's no way to quantify it, right? How much surrender is enough to open the doors of heaven? How, and, and how can I ever know if I've surrendered enough to enter heaven? Right? So if that's a, a requirement, and again, it's not. Notice this is a list of things the gospel is not. I'm just you know, kind of coming at it from their viewpoint. And let's say for the sake of argument it were a requirement, it would be an, a requirement that's impossible to meet because there's no quantification of it. There's no passage that says you must surrender this much. Now, Calvinists would say, well, it's easy. How much do you have to surrender? All. you got to surrender all. Well, that preaches well, and it sounds good, and it'll get a few hearty amens at the Desiring God conference, but it's not still quantifiable. How much is all? How do I know if I've surrendered all? Show me how I can know that I've surrendered all. I can know what I believe. Knowing what you believe is, is, is a simple yes or no. Do you believe Jesus Christ died and rose again for your sins? Yes or no. But have I really surrendered my all to Jesus? And how do I know if I'm not keeping something back in the recesses of my mind? Yeah, Gary. So what is all? Excuse me, all. I surrender all. Well, what is it? I right. Don't understand that. So yeah, that's the point. We don't know what surrender all is, and so it in a sanctification context and passages. By the way, that hymn is often used as a 
sal- you know, a- an eternal salvation call. Like you'll give the gospel and you say, are you ready to get saved? Great, let's stand together and sing, I surrender all. And you think that by surrendering all, you've now been born again. But the Bible never uses that language. What word does the Bible use to tell us how to have eternal life? Faith or belief, right? So, you know, in a sanctification context, when we say, boy, you should surrender all, we just mean you should be fully devoted to the Lord. You should, in the Spirit, be surrendered to Him, yielding to the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18, you know, being filled with the Spirit. I think we've talked about this before, but, you know, there's a difference between being permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit, which happens at the moment of salvation. I think we talked about this last week. You made that great point. Um, and being filled with the Spirit. So I should have remembered this discussion and put up a chart for you, but it's in my chart book uh, if anybody has that. But being indwelt by the Holy Spirit is a permanent thing. It's a one-time thing, and it happens the moment you trust in Christ and Him alone for salvation. He takes up residence. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is a daily thing that requires our yieldedness. So when Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. He's contrasting the controlling influence of wine, if you drink too much of it, versus the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you yield to the Holy Spirit. So as He convicts you and and leads you, and guides you, and brings verses of Scripture to your mind, are you going to walk in the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 5, or walk in the flesh? Which one are you going to do? Are you going to yield to the Holy Spirit? Remember in Galatians 5.25, I think it is, he says, since you're alive spiritually, you've been born again, reborn by the Spirit, you should live in the Spirit. But we don't always do that. Sometimes we live in the flesh. So, you know, surrendering all means yielding to the spirit and and you know we're not ever going to be able to do that perfectly that's the difference between practical righteousness and positional righteousness as long as we're in this old body on the sin-stricken earth sin's going to rear its head but to the extent that we stay in the word of god do the the things that god's word tells us to do to foster and build up our faith such as being around other believers, being a part of a Bible teaching church, again, spending time in prayer and fellowship with the Lord and spending time reading God's word. The Spirit of God will, you know, will build on that and will be more and more sanctified, more and more like Christ. Now, we are positionally in Christ either way. You know, if a person's born again, they're in Christ and nothing can change that. They're part of the family of God. But they may not always act like the family of God, and that's the problem. So, I mean, I think you've got a definition problem in either case, right? If you think you have to surrender to the Lord to get to heaven, or if you think surrendering to the Lord is just part of your spiritual growth process. But at least if it's a spiritual growth process, you know, you're already coming to the Lord saying, Lord, you know, I'm unworthy. I'm, I'm not always perfect. I've... I confess that I've not been walking with you lately. I confess that my thoughts haven't conformed to you. I haven't taken every thought captive. And so, Lord, today I want to surrender my all to you. And, it's, it, you know, your eternal destiny of heaven or hell isn't hanging in the balance in that case. And that's the problem with making this a requirement. Um, does that help think through it a little bit? Any follow-up? Well, not right now. Not right now. All right. 
My life's goal, just so you know, is for one of these times to answer Gary's question, and he goes, you've answered it completely, and I understand everything perfectly. Thank you. Then I'll feel like I've arrived in life. It's a moment in time, and then it passes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Jeff. I mean, it's really, it's a will thing, and I think that's why it's so, it's impossible to tell if you, how much of your will you're holding on to, because a lot of times we have impulses, and and we don't know where they're coming from, you know, um, a lot of it's in scripture, and you can tell, well, that's not a biblical impulse, so that's clearly coming from me, sometimes we have impulses that are kind of in between, like, gosh, I feel like I should stop off and, you know, speak to my neighbor. Well, you also might have the impulse at the same time of, yeah, but Kara really wanted some help with dishes tonight. So, so right. some of those are a little harder to to figure out, like, is this my will? Is it the will of the Spirit? Like, if the Spirit's telling me, pull over, your neighbor needs to talk to you. Yeah. You know, talk to Kara later and tell her you're sorry, but this is important, you know. Yeah, so there's a... Um Let's see. I'm going to see if I can keep talking. I want to see if I can pull up a, a chart here. It'll take take me a second. Um, there's What you're really talking about is knowing and doing the will of God, discerning the voice of the Spirit to whom we want to yield and surrender, right? Versus, is this, you know, not of the Spirit, right? right. And you said it extremely well. Some things are obvious, um, but... Uh, you know, some things are, are not, you know. If you feel the urge to go rob a bank, you can pretty much rule that out. That's not from the Lord. But, you know, stopping to help a brother, yeah, you got to weigh, weigh the options. So I interrupted you. Sorry about that. No, it's good. And I, I remember uh, there was a friend of, of ours um, who... He really keyed in on the word surrender. That was, you know, he didn't, he didn't come up with all these other reasons. And at the time, I, I had a little bit of a problem with it because I thought, well, surrendering is really a great thing to do. And I, and I felt so, it was so important for me to get myself out of the way. Um, but I wasn't, uh, it was harder for me to, with clarity, see the distinction between um, salvation, surrender, which is not biblical, and 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 then sanctification surrender, which is, you know, really that's you could do something really good, but not in surrender. You're doing it either for pride or you're doing it for um, selfish ambition, and so it's a good thing to do, but you're doing it for the wrong reason. It's not the spirit sure. leading you, and so that's. Uh, that's why it's, it can be so challenging, and, and, and obviously it's never 100%, because not only are we sinful with our desires, but we're also, um, we have minds that have been deteriorated and broken down through, through the processes of sin and, and just our weakness. Yeah, yeah, so um, this would be a good, really good thing if I can just find it, so bear with me here. Uh, So it talk because I yeah here well here's a JPEG anyway that's not gonna be helpful. Uh, where's the? Well anyway maybe I can throw this up there uh, if I can. 
but it, it there's some there's some nuances that come from uh, you know uh, trying to discern the will of God which is again there's some inherent subjectivity to it which is why um, you know it is uh, something that we can't make a requirement for salvation. I mean, we don't make it a requirement for salvation because the Bible doesn't make it a requirement for salvation. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm just trying to make the argument logically and, you know, philosophically as well that just think about the implications of it. Do you really want your eternity, eternal destiny hanging in the balance? Um, so here we go. Let's see if this will work. So, let me do that. Can you guys see that? No, you can't. That's the problem. Um, so, all right. The people on the screen can see it, but, I mean, on the live stream can see it, but you can't. So, bear with me just a second. I will figure this out. So, what we want to do is like this. Because I really want you to see this, but I want the people watching to see it too. One, one of these days, I'll get better at technology, and I will, uh, I will be able to do this. Okay, so here's that. Here's that. So now you should be able to see that. So I'm going to leave that up, and then I'm going to go over here and shut that down and put it up for you guys. Okay. So you guys can see that. All right. So, you know, basically I, I categorize this into three different uh, columns, as you can see, uh, clear, relevant, and then less clear. Or if you look at the bottom there, normally I would talk about these as I bring them in, but they go from the very clear to the less clear, ultimately to, you know, the vague. So that's what reminded me of this is the way you brought this up, Jeff. The clear commands are pretty simple. It's, they're commands in Scripture. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't steal. Those kinds of things. And so our response is simply one of obedience, right? We either are going to obey God's commands or we're not. Um, so in that sense, it's entirely objective and clear. But then we've got passages in Scripture that are more at the principle level, and then we're dealing, instead of with direct obedience, more application. So you think of some of the passages in Proverbs and other general theological principles that um, aren't dealing with something specific, but they, depending on your life circumstance, you could apply them, right? So does it apply or does it not? Well, the, the principle is, is timeless and it's authoritative, it's God's Word, but does it apply to this situation, right? So... 
you know, I'm trying to think of some proverbs like, um, you know, don't be a surety for somebody. Don't be a cosigner or whatever. Well, that's a, certainly a great principle, right? Does that mean if you ever do that in any circumstance, you're sinning? Not necessarily. The proverbs are not intended to be taken that way, right? Um, so, but there might be a, a situation where you're praying about something and the Spirit of God puts that verse on your mind and you, you feel led to apply it, right? So that uh, can be objective or subjective. But then in general, you've got life experience. And this is where you just have to rely on the Holy Spirit and make educated decisions based on the circumstance. And, and you know, if you've been down this road before and it didn't turn out well, you learn from experience, you know, and you say, ah, I'm not going to do it. So this is more an issue of discernment, and it's entirely subjective. And it's uh, not necessarily a sin issue because one person might take action one way because they really feel like that's what the Spirit of God would have them do, and someone else might take action in an entirely different way, right? So anyway, that chart is in the chart book, along with more than 100 others. But, um, you know, yielding to the Holy Spirit, the closer we get to the Holy Spirit, the closer, the, the more developed and mature we come in our faith, become in our faith, the, the easier it is to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And ideally, as you go through your spiritual journey, you, things that bother you and, and cause you to stumble today hopefully won't cause you to stumble two years from now or three years from now because you're growing more uh, mature. All right, any questions about that before I move, move back to our presentation? Well, hopefully that was worth the, the effort there. All right, so now let's go back here and pick up with where we left off. So all of this is under the heading of surrendering to Jesus as Lord is not a requirement for salvation. This will come up here in a second, I promise. There it goes. Okay. So uh, there are a lot of uh, Bible teachers, and I'm going to give you some examples here, that suggest that it is. In fact, here's one. Uh, these are a series of quotes from one leading pastor of our day, very popular, and here's what he says eternal salvation requires. It requires, these are direct quotes, placing oneself totally in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ if you want to go to heaven. We have the same problem that we just talked about. How do I know if I've totally submitted to him? Right? What is total? Can you pull out your ledger and prove it? It's inherently subjective. Uh, willful obedience in turning from sin. Willful obedience in turning from sin. That's that thing we talked about a lot with repentance, that U-turn concept, that you've got to turn it around. You can't just receive the free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. You've got to take some action. Those, ba <clears throat> Those bad things you've been doing, you've got to stop doing them. Or some people would say at least be willing to stop doing them. Because Jesus isn't going to give you the gift of eternal life unless you're willing to behave, you know. Well, again, if that's what the case is, then it's not a gift. It's a contract. It's a quid pro quo. You tell me that you're going to try your best to stop sinning, and I'll give you eternal life. But that's not, that's not the picture the Bible paints. It's one directional, a unilateral gift paid for by the blood of Christ, not a bilateral contract. Um, this same author goes on to say, if, if you want to go to heaven, you have to yield to Christ's authority. 
And you'll often see this uh, depicted in gospel tracts with a little diagram at the end where they show a person and their heart outlined and then they have a throne in there and they say, you know, right now self is on the throne. You're in charge of your life. But if you want to go to heaven, you got to take self off the throne and the next picture will show you got to put Christ on the throne. you got to yield to his authority. He's got to be in charge of your life. First of all, how do you do that? That amounts to nothing more than a pledge of allegiance. Okay, Lord, I'm not going to be in charge of my life anymore. I'm pledging to let you be in charge and follow you. But uh, again, that turns salvation into a bilateral contract, a quid pro quo. And the Bible never says anywhere to do that. The passages that they quote for this are all in the context of sanctification, discipleship, the spiritual growth process. Those are all synonyms for the same thing. Uh, the, the same pastor says you've got to make a purposeful decision to forsake all unrighteousness and pursue righteousness instead. So, I mean, these are, and by the way, these are all from the same book. So, you know, you get the sense that you're, you know, you're, you're almost like, you know, you're sitting down with a used car salesman or something, and he's got this triplicate form, and you've got to initial each one of them. Okay, Lord, I'm going to be totally submissive to you. Lord, I'm going to promise to turn from my sin. Lord, I'm going to make you in charge of my life and put you on the throne of my life. You know, and you just sign each one of them, and eventually the contract is complete, and he says, okay, you got a deal, I'll let you into heaven. That's not the picture the Bible paints. And anybody who suggests this, does not understand grace. Even though their ministry might be called grace, <laughs> have grace in the name of their ministry. They don't understand grace. Not the way the Bible teaches it anyway. Grace is free. Free means free, right? Free doesn't mean sign on the dotted line. Doesn't mean make pledges and promises. Doesn't mean stop doing something or start doing something or be willing to stop doing something and be willing to start doing something. It means Man, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I'm a, I'm a, I'm my life and my nature is an offense to a holy God, and He can't look on sin. So I need the, the precious righteousness of Christ to cover me. And so I'm going to trust in the one who took my place, paid my penalty, rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and He alone can give me that gift. And so that, that's who I'm going to trust in. So these things are not, at, in any sense, part of the discipleship, I mean, uh, the, the uh, salvation process, they're all part of the discipleship process. So, uh, so here's some examples of some verses that are often misquoted and mishandled uh, to, said to be applying to how we get saved. So Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Well, that is the quintessential discipleship passage. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. So when Jesus is saying, follow me, he's saying, be my disciple. And by the way, in the first century, that, me that word had very particular meaning in, in the Jewish context of the rabbi pupil. And it meant literally you would leave your belongings behind, leave your father and mother, and you would follow the master wherever he went, and you would sit under his teaching, and you would learn from him. And and where he went, you would go. And it had a physical, geographic aspect to it. Um, that's why we never see the verb follow in the New Testament, which is the Greek word akalutheo. We never see it used after the Gospels 
until you get to Revelation 19 when believers are following Christ on white horses coming back to rule the world. <laughs> because this concept of following inherent within it was a physical thing. Today, in the age of the church, when we have the indwelling spirit, we follow his convicting work. You know, it's like Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was new Christ, right? And he, he met him before he was saved. And then, of course, he met him in, on the road to Damascus. So he could say, you know, imitate me, you know, that kind of thing. But you don't say you don't see that word follow used in a, in a physical geographical sense because it's about discipleship. So denying yourself means putting Christ first. Taking up your cross means putting to death the desires of the flesh. Paul uses that same concept in Romans 6 through 8 when he says, We've died with Christ, therefore the old man has died. And so, you know, we should put to death the, the desires of the flesh. Um, so all of that is to believers. Romans 6 through 8 is to believers. And yet people will say, Okay, you know, you're ready to get saved. Maybe you're talking to an unbeliever, evangelizing them, and the person says, yes, I, you know, I, I want to be saved. I don't want to go to hell. And they say, okay, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, if you're that unbeliever, what does that look like, right? Now, many uh, compelling altar calls and appeals from the pulpit have been given such that people do, uh, with all their gusto, make these type of emotional commitments. And they'll say, Lord, at this point, I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to put my desires to death. I'm going to make you the Lord of my life, and I'm going to follow you from now on. And in so doing, they mark that moment as their conversion experience, the, the moment they became a Christian. And then what happens? Just like the article that I've got at the back there that I gave out a few weeks ago on the commitment-based gospel, you walk with them, you're a fly on the wall in their life for a few weeks, they begin to stumble. Something happens. They give in to the flesh. They get they have an angry, angry outburst or worse, whatever it could be. And because they thought their eternal destiny was pinned to the moment they made this commitment to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me, they begin to what? Doubt. Ooh, did I really commit enough? I'm not following Jesus in this moment. I didn't just I just wasn't following Jesus a few moments ago when I committed this sin. So did I really do it well enough? Maybe I didn't mean business, maybe it wasn't earnest enough or sincere enough, so I got to do it again. And so it leads to a life of confusion, doubt, guilt, and all kinds of things that is, are never productive. But when you understand correctly that Jesus was speaking here to the disciples who were saved, then of course, it makes sense. Yeah, every day we should, you know, deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow me. That's what discipleship is, right? Uh, again, uh, same thing in Luke's gospel, um, except Luke adds daily. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. Well, now we've got an even more stringent requirement for entrance into heaven, don't we? What if I go two days? Without following Christ? What if I backslide or give in to the flesh? You know? Uh, well, then clearly you haven't met the standard. You must not be going to heaven, right? But when you understand that this is talking about discipleship, it begins to come clear, right? So now I say, 
you know what? Yeah, I, I haven't been following the Lord. I haven't been taking up my cross daily. Um, and I confess that. And, I'm, and, and I own that before the Lord. And then, you know, I'm made back into right fellowship with Him. And that, that intimacy is restored. And I'm abiding in Christ, like John says. Like Jesus said first. Remember, Jesus told the disciples in the upper room to abide in Him. Abide means to remain close to. Meno is the Greek word, to remain close to. And then John picks up on that 60 years later when he writes the epistles of John, and he tells believers to do that. We should abide in the Lord. Because why? There's a closeness there. But when we sin, we're not abiding in the Lord. We're not acting, you know, we're not in close fellowship with the Lord. So uh, you know, we could go through more. Uh, here's one from Luke. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, Right? And yet people say that this is a means of getting saved. Even though the Bible repeatedly calls our salvation free, they mistakenly say you've got to count the cost. How can you count a cost when there is no cost? This is basic Bible study methods 101. And it's amazing and stunning to me how many otherwise pretty brilliant theologians don't see this. I mean, how can you reconcile that we are justified freely by His grace, or whoever desires let him drink of the water of life freely, with sitting down and counting the cost? That's pretty, I mean, my eight-year-old could figure that out, right? I don't have an eight-year-old, but if I did, she could figure it out, right? Um so counting the cost is, is a discipleship passage, right? You know, uh, I mean, it just, I mean, we could beat this to death, but, you know, someone gives you something for free, and you get out your change purse, and you go, here, let me count out what I owe you. No, no, you, you don't have anything to count. You, you don't owe me anything. You don't understand. I'm giving you this to free. No, no, I got to count something. No, it's free. Free means free, at no cost. In fact, in the What is Free Grace video that I just did, I actually looked at some lexical definitions of uh, the word free. It's the word dorea is the, adject, is the noun, and dorean is the adverb. And one of the lexical definitions is at no cost. <laughs> That's what it literally means. I didn't think about this verse at that time when I was doing the video, but it would have been interesting to bring this up. How can something that has no cost, in order to get it, require you to count the cost? You can't count something that doesn't exist, right? So... Um, you know, uh, that's another mistaken passage. Here's one, Luke 14. Uh, Likewise, whoever does not forsake all cannot be my disciple. Now, what Jesus says here, he means, and it's obviously, it's the words of the Lord, it's 100% right. You cannot be his disciple unless you forsake all. But you can be a born-again Christian because there's a difference between being a Christian and being, you know, a disciple. Judas was a disciple, but he wasn't a Christian. Right? Peter was a Christian, but he wasn't a or a believer, uh, but he wasn't a disciple when he denied Christ. Disciple just means follower. Christian today in the church age means a person who's believed the gospel and been saved. So Jesus was telling you the requirements for what discipleship, not how to get to heaven, right? Um, and again, even if it were a requirement, it, it places a burden on the unbeliever 
that is impossible to meet and impossible to quantify. How much is all? What does all mean? How, how do I know if I've forsaken all? In a moment of emotion and passion, I might say, okay, I forsake all, but again, down the road, the first time I sin, I'm going to realize, well, I apparently didn't forsake all. There's still a part of my fleshly nature that likes to do some bad things. And, uh, and that's the goal of discipleship, is to you know, bring that into uh, subjection. So that's discipleship. So Jesus neither needs nor requires your allegiance as a prerequisite for receiving eternal life. Jesus paid it all. Um, eternal life is a unilateral gift, not a bilateral contract. Now, sometimes, and I promised I was going to talk about this this week, so I'm glad we got to it. Uh, sometimes in this debate or this discussion, people will suggest this, uh, this you know, imaginary notion between what they call head faith and heart faith. And some of you are familiar with this. You've come across it. You've read books you know, that, that make this analogy. And the analogy goes something like this. If a person claims to be a believer, but they're living in abject sinful behavior, well, they must have only believed up here. They didn't really believe it down here. They had head faith, or sometimes they'll say they had intellectual faith, but not heart faith. And what they're meaning by saying that is that they didn't, that person they're claiming, that's not a Christian, they're claiming, didn't really surrender all, didn't really forsake all, didn't really turn away, didn't really make a commitment, didn't really make him Lord. All of those requirements that are front-loaded into their understanding of what it means to believe the gospel. And so they say all of those things take place down here in the heart. And if you really believe, you'll do all those things. But if you don't really believe, if you have spurious faith, that you only believed it up here in the head, uh, then you didn't really believe. So they, they create this... Uh, and it totally is a creation, I'm about to show you, artificial tension between the heart and the head. Like somehow you've got to understand the gospel up here with your brain, but then you've got to bring your heart into submission. And unless you, your heart is really willing, to, really willing to bring something to the table and make, you know, initial those agreements, you didn't really believe. You just believed it up here, right? But according to Scripture... It's not where you believe that saves you. It's what you believe. In fact, um, you know, there are plenty of passages, I'm about to show you some of them, that unmistakably equate the heart and the mind. The heart and the mind are a composite of the immaterial part of man that communicates with the Lord, that, you know, interacts with the Lord, right? Um you know, they, they, you know, it's just the way the Bible, it's a metaphor, essentially, that the Bible uses for the seat of our thoughts and will and emotions and all of those things, is the mind-heart. It's not two different places, right? Um, you know, uh, the, the other day we, we met some friends at a park, and um, before we, it snowed three inches in May, um, and... Um, but I'm not bitter about it or anything. Um, but uh, anyway, and a friend brought a little Nerf football, and we some other kids that were there were wanting to throw the football and while we were watching our little granddaughter. And, you know, I could say, as I threw that football, 
I could say, man, I, you know, I threw that with my arm, right? Or I could also say, I threw that with my hand, right? I mean, what I'm saying is I threw the ball, and I'm just using a part of my body as a metaphor for the means by which I did that. And the Bible uses head and heart interchangeably as a metaphor for the means by which we exercise our will. We, we think, we choose, we believe, we distrust, all of those emotions. Um, so, uh, the script, this is a quote from somebody I quoted in my book, uh, Getting the Gospel Wrong, uh, Gordon Clark says, The scriptural evidence that the term heart means the mind, the intellect, and the understanding is tedious in length. And I'm about to give you just a brief uh, summary. He goes on to say the three terms, heart, soul, and mind, are synonymous, joined together for emphasis. They do not separate into a separate place where you've got to make sure you really believe the gospel down here and not just up here. You know, you'll hear people say, you know, a lot of, I've heard preachers make this analogy, I don't know how many times, in their, in their you know, very passionate appeal to get people to walk down an aisle and make an emotional commitment. They'll say something like, now don't, don't you miss heaven by 18 inches. What they mean is the, the distance between the brain and the heart. And a lot of people are going to miss heaven by 18 inches because they believe it up here, but they don't believe it down here. Believe it with your heart. Give Him your all. Surrender your all, as they're singing, as the choir is singing, I surrender all in the background, right? Um, so, I mean, some altar call hymns are better than others. Just as I am is kind of a favorite of mine, right? That's pretty simple, right? Um, so, uh, for example, we could go to the Psalms. You see this a lot there. Psalm 73, Asaph says, Thus my heart was grieved, and I was vexed in my mind. Now, what's even more powerful about poetic passages like Psalms and Proverbs is the way in Hebrew they're written in parallelism, what's called parallelism. And you either have synonymous parallelism or contrasting parallelism. And it's very easy to tell the difference because synonymous parallelism is usually connected by an and, such as here. Contrasting parallelism is connected by a but, right? And in synonymous parallelism, the same it's, it's communicating one truth using two synonymous different ways, saying it two different ways. In contrasting, it's, com it's saying a truth and then giving you the opposite, right? The wise man does such and such, but the fool does this. You know, that's contrasting parallelism. This is synonymous parallelism, and heart and mind are synonymous, right? Grieved and vexed are synonymous. Job, also uh, synonymous parallelism, another wisdom book. God here is speaking to Job. Who has put wisdom in the mind? Or who has given understanding to the heart? Same thing. Not talking about two different places. Right? Same thing. Jesus, knowing their hearts, I mean, excuse me, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, wait a minute. I thought the mind was where we think, and the heart was where we will. That's what Calvinists teach. Jesus says you think with your heart, because you think with your heart-mind. They're not different. Uh, Proverbs, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. Jeremiah, uh, the prophet, says, I will put, this is a rhetorical uh, it's not poetic, so it's not synonymous parallelism. It's a rhetorical device of repetition. Grammatically, we would call this apposition, A-P-P-O-S-I-T-O-N. 
and the first line is an apposition, the second line is an apposition to the first line. So this is from the New Covenant passage. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of the Lord, house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Is he talking about two different things? No. It's one law, right? Ultimately the law of the Spirit, when the New Covenant is inaugurated. But he's saying it's going to go in our heart minds. Right? Yeah. In that case, it seems like it's almost embedded deeper in the mind than the, on the heart because he's just writing it on the heart and it's in the mind. So right, must... but that would be completely reading into it in the English translation. Again, this is repetition and we see this a lot in Scripture where it'll just say the same thing and and, and he's saying, you know, I will, I will both put and write my law into the hearts and minds of God's people. That's the idea. You'd make a good Calvinist. So. Uh, James 4, look at this. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Wait a minute. If you've got a problem with your mind, why is He telling you to do something with your heart? I thought they were separate things. If you've got a problem with your heart, you should do something with your heart, according to a Calvinist. If you've got a problem with your mind, you should do something with your mind. But Jesus says, no, the problem with your heart can be solved through the mind, right? Because they're the same thing. Psalm 7, a Davidic psalm, for the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. You know, so you see this again and again. Uh, Paul said, you know, let your requests be known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. It's not like God's peace is 60% guarding our mind and 40% guarding our heart. They're the same thing. When peace comes over us, it fills our heart and our mind. So again, it's not where or how you believe. It's what you believe. But Calvinists teach that, that faith has to be of a particular kind. It's the kind of faith that saves you. And they, just like they have a fake distinction between heart and mind, they have a fake distinction between real faith and spurious faith. And the Bible knows no such distinction. Uh, there are people who believe, but they believe the wrong thing, and therefore they're going to go to hell. A Muslim's faith in the five pillars of the Islamic religion is just as much faith as my faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again. Faith is just has one meaning, confidence or assurance. They've placed their confidence or assurance in a lie, but it's still faith. A child's belief in Santa Claus is just as much real belief as my belief that Santa Claus is a myth, right? So it's, faith is faith. It's not where or how you believe, it's what you believe. And when faith meets the right object, the result is eternal life every time, right? Um, you know, you don't have to believe the gospel and really, 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 really believe it, you know. And that's the, the notion that some people suggest when I'm talking about how you believe, um, you know, I love the old hymn, My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. I actually quoted this in um, my book, Top Ten Reasons. It's always been, uh, there's several hymns that just really have meaning because they're so theologically rich. But Eliza Edmonds Hewitt uh, wrote this in the early 20th century. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. 
I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fears and doubts. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. My heart is leaning on the word, the written word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name. Salvation through his blood. Gary and I were just talking about salvation to the name of Christ. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me, his precious blood he shed. For me, his life he gave. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. So it's a matter of who are you trusting to forgive your sin and give you eternal life. Not how much you surrender, how much you count the cost, how much you forsake, how much you pledge or promise. There's no other plea. Jesus paid it all. So any questions or thoughts about, uh, I'll put the, the premise up there. Any other questions or thoughts before we close out? And we'll stop there rather than go on to the next one. We'll, that'll be a good starting point for next week. Any questions or comments? All right. Yeah. Do you, do you think there's anything about the heart that communicates emotion, which I don't think is... Obviously, emotion is actually less important than than knowing. A lot of times, our emotions just lead us astray. I'm just I was just going down the bunny trail of how how did the heart get to be, you know, differentiated from the mind, and and obviously our perception of the heart and mind is different than what a cultural you know Jewish nation would think of right. the heart and mind. Well, our, inf our understanding of the heart and mind has been influenced by, you know, Platonic philosophy and Greek, the Greeks um, very heavily. What I'm trying to suggest is we need to use Bible words with Bible definitions, yep. right? So I understand that in common language, we tend to think of the mind is where, you know, you memorize the times tables and you memorize the 50 state capitals and the heart is where you grieve or rejoice, right? We tend to think that way. But from a perspective of believing the gospel, faith, and well, I should let me back up. From the perspective of the Bible, you know, we are a bipartite beings, meaning we have a material aspect and an immaterial aspect, Right? Uh, some theologians suggest we're tripartite because they they call it you know body soul and spirit and that again is a Greek philosophical influence. Um, I don't I don't see it that way and I think a lot of scholars don't. I think there's just two aspects: the material, which is what you see right here, and the immaterial, which is what you cannot see. And the immaterial is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotions. All of that together. And, and the metaphor from the physical body, right? Because, you know, heart and mind are both physical things, right? They're physical organs. I mean, not to get too graphic, but you could cut them out and show them to somebody, right? So in both cases, it's a physical metaphor for an immaterial thought process. And so, you know, it's understandable that we are prone to lean towards one metaphor more than the other, depending on what we're talking about. But we need to make sure we understand the biblical concept, which is both the heart and the mind are where we make the decisions and express faith and yield and do all of those unseen immaterial things. Yeah. 
one thing is too, like if someone had like heart failure and they got a heart transplant from an unbeliever, it's still that's that's very good point. Yeah, thankfully, so we don't have to screen the heart. We have enough screening to do now with all kinds of other stuff going on. So yeah. Do you think that the word conscience is a word that's used today to refer to what you were just talking about, our heart and our minds being together, and we it's our conscience that gets pricked by the Holy Spirit? Yeah, so the Bible uses the term conscience, and, and again, it's, it's all wrapped up in the heart-mind. I would just think heart-mind as a kind of a compound word is what I would suggest, because the Bible seems to, to do that. Um, I, I don't know that I've come across the thinking that the conscience represents a merging of the heart and mind. I mean, it may be out there. To me, the conscience is just another expression of the immaterial aspect of man, which is rooted in... In, in what you cannot see. It's rooted in who we really are. Heart and mind are just two frequent metaphors from the physical body to represent the non-physical aspect of man. They're not technical terms that refer to two different aspects of our immateriality. It's not like there are some things that are rooted in the mind and some that are rooted in the heart. They're all rooted in one thing, our what I would call our soul. So the soul is a term that's used both in the New Testament and the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the word nephesh, and the New Testament is the word psuche, where we get psychology. And in both contexts, ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek, the term can mean either the whole being, meaning our material and immaterial, the whole us, or it can mean specifically the physical aspect or specifically the non-physical aspect. So context has to determine meaning. So... When, when I use the word soul, and a lot of, when you see this in a lot of writings, sometimes soul is a catch-all phrase to refer to the non-material part of man. So like before the session, we were talking about heaven and paradise and Abraham's bosom, and I think you said something about, we know, according to the Bible, that when a person dies, their soul goes immediately to be in heaven. I think you said that. So, okay, so yeah, I would say soul. Spirit in Scripture, is that part of us that is dead until it's quickened by the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ, and then it's what communicates to God. So so everyone has a soul. Everyone has a spirit, too. Some people's spirits have been quickened by regeneration. Some don't, you know. So the soul, though, is what is the real us. So I could cut off my arm, and it doesn't change me. I'm still JB. I may look different physically because of my material presentation but my immaterial aspect hasn't changed right so all, everyone will either spend eternity in heaven or eternity in hell based on whether they've received a free gift of eternal life um, so technically there's a distinction between soul and spirit which is why some people create three categories body soul spirit and, and we're three part type men but that's really not the case there's really just two parts the material and the immaterial the immaterial is comprised of soul and spirit the soul is our is who we are, our mind, our will, our emotions, our thought. Uh, and the spirit is that part that communicates with God, born dead but later revived through faith. So, uh, But conscience would, to me, be part of the soul. 
it's part of that that mind will emotions it's it's something that everyone has paul says in romans 2 that even unbelievers have a conscience it's part of part of general revelation indicating there's a god you know so great questions any anything else I just yeah. have to throw one more thing in. Yeah. Is just the beauty of how um, God created man and woman slightly different. Really? Yeah. I hadn't noticed. Cool. But. Um, but the way that we reason, um, and a lot of times um, the way that Kara thinks is, is, is so much different than the way I would have looked at it. Mm -hmm. and, and when you think of the heart and mind as one, um, I think that it's much more, it's an efficacious way of, of living, too. Not just for salvation, but also when you think about the, the thought processes that you go through and the way that your, your intellect and your emotions sort of dance within you, and, and it's sometimes harder to separate the two, yeah. um, maybe for some people than for others, um, but your emotions are also part of a rational thought process. Correct. And so, and so I think that's... It's not, not to elevate emotions further than they should be because the intellect always should be a part of that process. But at the same time, I think it does give weight to it in a certain way. Yeah, so that's, you, I'm glad you brought that up. So if you'll just give me five more minutes, I'll, I want to comment on that. So, you know, uh, sometimes we think of thoughts as originating from the mind and feelings as originating from the heart. Again, I'm suggesting they all originate from the same place. They're different, clearly. You know, think back to my model. Uh, if I could figure out how to do it quickly, I'd show you that chart that I frequently bring up, no trust, obey, right? you got to know the Word in order to trust the Word. you got to trust the Word in order to obey it. Well, clearly, knowing and trusting are two different things. People can have knowledge and be what we might call intellectually brilliant, but still be morally bankrupt, right? So that's because they're not acting on what they know. You know, So knowing things is one thing. Having that impact your life and applying that knowledge is, is quite another. So in the same way, this idea of knowledge and you know, wisdom, well, let's just leave it at knowledge and information, intellect, is I like the way you put it, it's this dance with our emotions. It, our emotions are built on knowledge. Emotions don't come out of nowhere, right? You get information. My cat died, and you have an emotion, right? Which is to cheer. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, which is to feel sadness. Feel, I said feel sadness, Gary. Make sure you quote me correctly. Feel sadness. Um, but you know, you know what I mean. You win the lottery, or you know, whatever. You have knowledge, which then is so they're not. They're all interconnected, which is precisely my point. Yeah. That we can drill down on them. There are certain biblical passages that address these. You know, rejoice evermore. You know, be joyful, Philippians, and so forth. But but they're still all part of of who we are. And then I wanted to comment on your. Um, comment about men and women and I think you said Kara was much smarter than you or something like that yeah, I couldn't remember no. Um, but no I think what we need to understand is that the biblical image of God and man going all the way back 6,000 years ago to creation before the depravity of man set in 
was according to a divine design, and absolutely there's distinctions, you know. Um, in the God, now God not only tells us he made them male and female as part of that design that he created, but we, of course we see the narrative. We see that he created Adam, and then he created Eve, and so forth. But the biblical text, and I don't want to preach another whole sermon here, but it's very fascinating to me, and maybe you've never heard this, that the biblical text in Genesis 1 through 3 the terms that are used in the account of creating Adam and creating Eve are totally different. The term in, in creating Adam, you know, he just he literally took a wad of dirt and just threw it together. But the term for Eve is he he fashioned, literally is a, is a lexical definition of that verb. He fashioned. In fact, the Old King James says fashioned. So uh, I think, or one of the translations does. So when you think about that. In, an, in a perfect world before 6,000 years of corruption and DNA corruption, men, what do we know about them? They like dirt. They like to get dirty. They like to get sweaty. They like to get dirt on their fingernails. You know, you go to, you go to Sears, a hardware, Sears uh, department store, the first thing the men do is go to the craftsman aisle. The first thing the women do is go to, you know, jewelry or dresses or perfume. That's, you know, that's overgeneralization, especially now because... The gender line is even long before this gender surrender movement has been messed up. But the way we were originally created, we are different. So we're wired differently, and we think differently, and we respond differently. Now that you can't, you know, make that a hard, fast rule today because we have plenty of examples of men who are particularly sensitive more maybe than others, and women that are particularly not emotional, maybe different from others. But the original divine design was that we complemented one another, and God meant for it to be that way. And so, you know, it's wise to recognize your own limitations, and you know, um, you know, and, and also the circumstance. You know, there are times when a man can be very emotional, get angry, get upset, and make rash decisions. You know, like Moses when he killed that Egyptian, right? Um, and we need to recognize when we're operating based on emotions and when we're operating based on wisdom and knowledge and so forth. But all I'm saying is that it would be, I think, inaccurate when making those distinctions to somehow tie them exclusively to a particular subset of our soul. I mean, we are, we are who we are. We are the mind-heart. And... And those are both physical organs that are used as metaphors for, as we saw, for both. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, it's kind of like reading the Bible in English. We bring certain things through our language to how we view the Bible. Yeah. Back in biblical times, the understanding of what the heart and the brain were is certainly different then than it was now, I would think it'd be easier for them to, this mind-heart union, just be centered on the heart because they could feel their heart, the beating. Maybe even sacrificing, the heart keeps beating after they mm -hmm. sacrifice the animal. They can see life in the heart. They don't see anything in the brain. They wouldn't make any association that the brain did anything. Yeah. It's just kind of there to fill up the head. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It, everything is cultural in its, in its uh, 
origin, and we need to you know interpret scripture with a cultural sensitivity, especially with some of these metaphors. Uh, of course, the Hebrews did, as we just saw, use the word mind a lot, so they understood, I think, um, them you know the concept, of course, of thinking and feeling. But I but I think you're right. But I think both those they would find in the heart, yeah, and not associated with. Well, they associated mind and heart because we saw, you know, for example, Psalm 7-9 tests the hearts and minds, right? So they, they, they identified it, but they saw them as one central thing, but they both refer to the same place, yes. right, which is they, what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Didn't they yeah. call, the Old Testament say that the seed of emotions was the kidneys? Well, that's, uh, again, another metaphor for, I don't remember, uh, Fear, maybe, or anxiety, or something. But, um, but you know, clearly the Old Testament makes much, as we've seen, just a small sampling of the heart and mind. And all I'm suggesting is those aren't two distinct places; they're both used interchangeably to refer to the same place, right? So, um, so yeah, this is this has been uh, been hopefully helpful and good discussion. But it's particularly relevant to this false notion. That you, in order to get to heaven, you can't just intellect quote intellectually believe. You have to believe with the heart. And anytime I run up against that argument, I explain to someone, "Tell me how you can believe something and it not be intellectual." I mean, do you believe it with your foot or your elbow? What 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 do you believe something with if not your intellect? That's what your intellect's for. But of course, Calvinists don't think you believe anything. They think. God forces you to believe. God gives you the belief. Remember, their view is the faith is the gift. So it's really you're just a passive agent doing something involuntarily. But, you know, we can save that discussion for another day. All right. Awesome. Thank you guys very much. Have a great uh, rest of the week, and hopefully we'll see you Sunday.